all the hubbub. There we go. Got it. All right. <clears throat> good morning. It is good to be with you. This summer, we are going through a series where we focus on the things that we do and when we gather as a congregation and why we do them. And what we found as we look at Scripture is that what we do when we gather matters because Scripture tells us that God makes himself present in a special way when his people gather. It's what he's promised. And then what we do in the presence of God and in the name of God matters. Scripture is very clear about these connections, that, that there's power in what we do when we do it in God's name, in his presence. And so what we've been doing is going through our order of service, slightly out of order, and looking at why we do each of those things. So we've talked about why we worship, why we sing, why we confess, why we do the prayers of the church, and today we're talking about communion, which has me especially uh, excited because, for two reasons. One, I, would, I think that communion is probably the most important thing that we do when we gather. It might be the most essential thing that we do when we gather. And also because as I have been preparing for this sermon, I've learned to view communion in a very different way, in a way that is it's so different from the way I've experienced communion most of the time, and it's, it's more joyful and freer, and most importantly, it's what the way they approached communion in the New Testament. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing things differently today. For those who are not here, I took a picture this morning of what the sanctuary looks like. We have everyone set up at tables, and we're going to be taking communion at our tables when the time comes. Because, and we'll, we'll talk about why we're taking it differently as we get there. But as I've been studying about communion in the New Testament, I've found that the, the atmosphere of communion is very different from how we tend to do things today. When I say we, I mean just Christians in general in the Western world. For us, communion tends to be solitary. You, even though we take it together, you kind of withdraw into yourself, you're very quiet, you don't look around, you don't talk, you know, we even have, we have background music to make it less awkward that nobody's allowed to talk to each other, so it's very somber, it's very uh, focused and quiet, and it's typically very guarded in a lot of different, depending on the tradition that you're in or the denomination, there are all kinds of barriers that might be put up around the Lord's Supper whether it means you have to be baptized into that particular denomination, or you have to be a member of that particular congregation, or you have to have attended that church the week before. They had communion tokens that they would give out the Sunday before communion, and you had to have one to prove that you, didn't, you weren't just showing up on communion Sundays. Um, all kinds of barriers that we put up to make sure that, um, to, just to protect communion. And in large part, that is because in the Western church, we tend to, we have, over time, for a variety of reasons, we've talked about communion as if it was the sacrifice of Jesus being reenacted. That's why this item is often called an altar. You've heard altar calls, because the idea is that we're seeing Jesus sacrificed for us again, or we're reenacting it, or, you know, we are typically remembering it, Depending on your tradition, you have a different way to phrase that, but this is where the sacrifice happens. And so we take that very somberly as we're dwelling on, you know, you might, some, some people have the impulse to try and itemize every possible sin they can think of. Some people feel like they're supposed to dwell on the full extent of Jesus' suffering. 
and all, everything that he did on the cross and everything that was done to him is because we tend to focus on this as the sacrifice. The early church, the New Testament church, did not view this as a sacrifice. We've talked about things that are sacrifices in the, in the worship service. We've talked about prayer being a sacrifice. We've talked about worship being a sacrifice. But they did not treat communion with a sacrifice mentality. Let me read you the first time that we see the church taking communion together after Pentecost. This is, uh, we looked at this passage before, it's basically the, all the things that the first church of Jerusalem after Pentecost, they, the things they did together. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Now the breaking of bread is a phrase that Luke uses in, his, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts to refer to communion. But if you follow the passage farther down, this is how it describes that practice of breaking of bread. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Notice that description. It's, it's, it doesn't sound like a somber, sacrificial thing like what happened in the temple. It's actually a meal that happens in their homes, and it's joyful, and it's grateful. Now, here's a really interesting thing that will challenge your categories. In the history of the church, for the first 300 years, we actually have a lot of records of what they said in church services throughout the history of the church. And it was for the first 300 years, we have no mention in the communion service of the death of Jesus. They don't talk about the death of Jesus for the first 300 years in communion. What they do is they focus on thanksgiving and gratitude. Because, now they definitely talk about the sacrifice of Jesus in worship. But communion is not a sacrifice. Communion is a feast. And the early church approached it as a feast. You can bet they didn't have little crackers and little juice cups. They had a meal, and they always, most meals would involve bread and wine, so it was just part of a normal meal that they would use. Now, I'm not saying we're wrong to do that. I'm not criticizing anything that we do as a communion, but that's, that's the starting point, is it's a feast. And it actually, in multiple times in the, New, in, the, in the New Testament, they connect communion with feasts in the Old Testament. So what I want to do now as we look at what communion is, I want us to look at how, the, how Paul connects communion with things that happen in the Old Testament and what that tells us about the nature of communion. Because the same God who set out the, the feasts in the Old Testament is the one who set up communion in the New Testament. So a good place to start is in a verse that you may hear in different church services when they take communion. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, or let us keep the feast. Now here, Paul connects Jesus with the Passover lamb, which makes a lot of sense to us because that's the meal they were eating at the Last Supper. Right? It was a Passover meal. And when we think of the Last Supper, again, we think of somber and serious and um, dark and foreboding, which is why it's, some of the conversations I have there feel a, lot of, a little bit out of place, like when they start arguing about who's the greatest. It's out of place with how we think about the Last Supper. But that's how we think of Passover. 
And so it fits with the way we expect communion to go. Thing is, that's not how Passover works. That's not how Passover works. Passover is not solitary or somber or serious. Passover is a party. In fact, let me, dis- let me read you one description of a Passover celebration in the Old Testament. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and priests praised the Lord every day with resounding instruments dedicated to God. It was a party, which makes sense, because why do you celebrate Passover? It's to recognize the fact that God freed them from slavery. I challenge you to get freed from slavery and then celebrate that fact on a holiday and do it seriously and somberly and individually. That's not how we celebrate our birthdays, let alone how we celebrate being freed from slavery. And Paul says that the Lord's table is the same kind of celebration. Because after all, haven't we also been freed? Don't we also have something to celebrate? What, what happens because of the sacrifice of Jesus is a good and joyous thing, right? And so there are many places in the, Old, in the New Testament where uh, our experience is connected with Passover and what Jesus has done for us provides us with freedom. So the first thing that we see, the first connection that's made is that communion is a celebration feast because God has saved his people. Just as he saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he has saved the church from slavery to sin and death. And we celebrate that. Now, another connection that Paul points out is actually a connection that Jesus made during the Last Supper. When Paul retells the story of the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians, he says, In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This blood is the new covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, when Jesus talks about the blood of the covenant, he is making a reference to a very specific thing that happened in the Old Testament. So, God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to Mount Sinai, because he didn't just free them just to free them. He freed them because he wanted to make a covenant with them and do something special with that people. And so, at Mount Sinai, they made a covenant. And here's how that process is described. They sacrificed an animal, and then Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, when I first became aware of this connection, I assumed then that this is communion. This is the connection to communion, is this moment when he's sprinkling blood on them. That's the connection with us drinking the cup, right? But that's not actually the parallel. If I were to draw the parallel, I would say that this moment is more your moment of baptism or when you become a Christian. Because there's something that happens when you make a covenant, the, the last thing you always do is always the same. It says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and all the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, something like pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. So they go up the mountain and they see God. What normally happens when you see God? Right? You normally die when you see God. 
but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Because you solidify a covenant with a meal. The way you did a covenant was you sacrificed an animal. Normally, you cut it in half, and then you would make the agreement between the halves, and then you would feast. You would eat the animal. And the communion meal is that meal. It's a covenant meal. So communion is a covenant meal where God and his people commit to each other. We still do this. What's the one covenant place where we still use the word covenant? Marriage, right? And one of the most important things in most weddings is the reception. Right? There's something valuable about the reception. There's something meaningful about that, even though technically you're not doing anything official. But when you sit down and eat together, that matters. So that's what communion is. It's this moment when we reaffirm our commitment to God and God reaffirms his commitment to us. There's one last feast uh, that I want to make the connection with in the Old Testament. There's a place in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about whether Christians should eat food sacrificed to idols. And so he makes this argument about comparing the Lord's table to the table of demons, is what he calls it. And as he's making this argument, he makes this one kind of almost throwaway comment. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? He's saying if you eat the sacrifice, you are committed to that sacrifice, and that's why the, sac- why the table of the Lord and the table of demons are incompatible. Because when you eat the sacrifice, you associate yourself with that. You're committing to that. Right? Now here's the interesting thing. There is one kind of sacrifice in which all the people of Israel ate. When he talks about the people of Israel participating in a sacrifice, there's only one where the people ate it. Most of them, the priests and the Levites ate it. But there's one, and it's called a fellowship offering. And a fellowship offering is very interesting. It's something that you do when you have something to celebrate and you want to say thank you to God. So let's say you have a really good harvest, you have a healthy child born, you get promoted, something good happens, and you want to celebrate and say thank you to God, you sacrifice an animal. And typically what you do is you sacrifice the most valuable animal you can afford for this, for this deal. Okay? So you bring it to God, you sacrifice it, you burn parts of it for God, and then you take the meat and you have a feast. But here's the interesting thing about fellowship feasts. The meat of their fellowship offering of Thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it till morning. Now, those of you who are multiple degrees away from the slaughtering of animals, that may not mean a whole lot. So let me tell you this. The, the most common sacrifice, fellowship offering, was a young bull. A young bull can yield 800 pounds of beef. Now think about this. You want to celebrate, and the way you've been told to celebrate with God is to sacrifice a young bull to produce 800 pounds of meat that has to be eaten in 24 hours. What are you going to do? That's what, 3,600 quarter pounder burgers, right? You are going to invite everybody you know to help you eat all this beef, right? You are going to invite your whole family, You know, your cousins, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, you are going to invite 
every one of your friends and every one of their friends. You're going to invite the Levites in your town because they don't have their own farms. They don't have their own livestock. So you invite them. You're going to bring in anybody with an appetite. You're going to bring in the poor, the needy. You bring everybody in. Please eat as much beef as you can take. It's all got to be gone. And the idea here is that you're celebrating the generosity of God, but God has set the rules for that so that the only way you can celebrate his generosity is to share it. You must bring in other people to help you eat the meat that you sacrificed to him. That's what makes it a fellowship offering. You're in fellowship with God, but he says, no, you also have to be in fellowship with other people. I hope you like beef, right? So communion is a fellowship feast where God's people share in his generosity. Now this gives us one, one question that we have to answer as we make that connection. Because we often get this wrong. Whose fellowship offering is it? Because in a fellowship offering, you have the person who makes the sacrifice, and that person sends out the invitations. And often... Christians get the idea that we are the ones making the offering, and so we send out the invitations. So we are going to invite people to our table, and we are going to set the, decide who is worthy of it. And we are going to, you know, this is where we get the idea of really closing off the table. You know that there are pastors in this world whose job it is to decide whether, well, which members of their flock are, uh, are worthy to take communion that week? I'm so glad I don't have that job. But there's a mentality, especially that sacrificial mentality that says we need to guard this so as to uh, make sure that only the right people and none of the wrong people get it. And that comes from a mentality of us saying this is our table and we're sending out the invitations. That is not how Paul saw things. Paul wrote in the, his letter to the Corinthians, he was correcting them for an issue that they were having and he said, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. So they're doing this communion in a way where some people would get there early. Probably the people who didn't have to do hard labor and finish their job first, they'd show up and they'd feast and they wouldn't wait for other people and there would be no food left for the people who had to put in a hard day's work and show up late. And not everybody was able to take communion. And notice what he says. He says, if you do it that way, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's somebody else's supper. That's your supper. Because you're the host. You're deciding who gets it. It's not the Lord's Supper. Communion is the Lord's Supper, which means that we debate so much about how Jesus is present in the bread and in the, in the cup. But what we forget is that Jesus is also present as the host. And this table is his. Jesus made the sacrifice, and Jesus sends out the invitations. And that makes us uncomfortable because the Gospels are pretty, pretty, have a pretty extensive record of the kinds of people Jesus invited to his table. A common complaint was that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But if this is Jesus' table then he sends out the invitations according to his standards. So that is very important for us to remember as we eat at the Lord's Supper that we have a choice whether we're going to eat his supper or our own. 
We'll talk a little bit more in a second about what that looks like. So, so that's what the communion meal is. The communion meal is first a celebration of the fact that God has saved us. And that's a joyous thing to celebrate. It's also a commitment, a, 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 uh, you know, a reaffirming of our commitment to God and recognizing his commitment to us that never wavers. And it's also a fellowship offering where we celebrate the generosity of God and we share it with each other. So the question then is, what do we do? What actually happens when we take communion? Now, there are a lot of, uh, there are volumes and volumes that have been written on what happens when you take communion. I don't want to get, I'm not going to get into the super speculative stuff today. I want to get into the, the, where the rubber meets the road, in my opinion. First of all, when we come to the table, we proclaim the gospel. Because here's the thing about a sacrificial meal. You can't send out the invitations, you can't have the meal without talking about what, where the meat came from. Right? If you're going to invite people to your fellowship feast, you say, hey, I had a great harvest, so I'm offering a fellowship, I'm offering a fellowship sacrifice, come eat it with me. You've got to tell people what's the occasion. Right? Why is there 800 pounds of beef to go around? Why do you need help eating all this beef? Well, as we come to the table, we can't help but talk about why there's something here to eat, why there is something to celebrate, where the sacrifice comes from. That's why Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because the reason there is food and drink on this table is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And God made us to be very tangible people. We learn by doing and feeling and tasting. And so as we take communion, we are experiencing the gospel in bread and in drink. So every time we do this, we are proclaiming the gospel. The second thing we do when we take communion is we renew our covenant with God. We choose to eat at the table of the Lord. And this may not, this has lost some of its cultural significance for us, but in the time when communion was instituted, it meant something to say that you eat at a certain person's table or you eat at a certain God's table. It was an association, it was a commitment, it was saying, I am that person's, I belong to that person or to that God or I'm part of their household. And this is why Paul, when he's talking to the church about how they should handle uh, meals at, at, uh, idol, at uh, pagan temples, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. When we eat at the table, we are saying, this is our table. This is where we come for sustenance. This is where we come for salvation. This is where we come for our identity and our mission. And we must not eat at other tables. Now, I don't know of any, any of the idols that we face in this world that are offering competing communion services, but there are so many idols that compete for our attention, that compete for our allegiance, that tempt us to trust in them. And when we eat at the table, we are publicly demonstrating this is where we put our trust. This is the one who saves us. This is who we follow. Third, at the table, we receive and share the generosity of God. 
When we talk about communion, we generally talk about the Last Supper. But what we forget is that there were a lot of suppers. Jesus ate a lot of meals, and all of them are instructive for how we take communion and, and what communion means. And Jesus even told parables and stories at meals about communion, about meals, and how, they ought, how, how God handled his table. So, for instance, he tells a story about a, a master who invites all these people to a meal, and they won't come. And this parable gives us a, mind, a, a picture of how God treats his table. It says, The owner of this house ordered a servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. God wants his table full. And the, when the people he called didn't come, as this was always the plan, but in the parable, when the people he called didn't come, he lowered the entry requirements. He said, all right, just go out and get anybody, everybody. And it is because of that mentality of God that he wants anybody and everybody, he's bringing in the beggars, that all of us have a place at the table. Every one of us who has a place at the table, we're here because Jesus lets in beggars. Right? And so we are receiving the generosity of God when we come to the table. Now the interesting thing is that that very same meal where Jesus told that parable, he also gave this advice. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So how does he want us to handle the table? We are in because Jesus lets in beggars. So we should share that generosity by letting in our fellow beggars, by sharing with others. And so as we take communion, we, are, we receive it, we have a place here because God is generous, and we have an opportunity to share that generosity with others. Now the last thing I want you to, the last thing I want to talk about about what communion does, I want to look at by bringing out the one passage that more than anything else has motivated people to be afraid of communion or to be protective of communion. This is in that passage where Paul is talking about they're taking communion the wrong way. He says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're taking because some of you eat early and the rest of you uh, don't get to eat. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. What he seems to be saying is make sure you take communion in the right way because if you don't, there are really bad consequences. And so what people have taken, that, is, that has led to this mentality that people have that we need to keep the wrong people away from communion and also we take it kind of with shaking fingers because we're afraid. Maybe I haven't confessed every possible sin. Is there, some, I, there were people who, like, in the Catholic Church, it became normal for only the priest to take communion um, every week except for one a year because people were afraid of the dangers of taking communion without having confessed every sin. They're also afraid of spilling the juice and how horrible that would be. That's why they would, when they did take it, they only gave the, the regular people crackers because they, didn't, they were so afraid of mishandling communion. But here's the interesting thing. 
That's not what Paul is talking about. There's even some who will say discerning the body means you have to understand the exact theology of how Jesus is present before you take it, which is terrifying to me. That's like saying you have to understand the Trinity before you can take communion. Right? Like that. But here's the thing. Paul is not talking about that. Let me point out just a little, a little nuance in the passage that helps us see what he's actually talking about. Notice it says, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Notice he says, eat and drink, about communion, but he only references the body, not the body and blood. When Paul talks about communion, he talks about body and blood. But the body of Christ is not communion. When he uses just the body, he's talking about the church. Notice the problem that he's discussing here is that they're taking communion in a divisive way that leaves poorer people in the church out. That's the wrong way to do communion. That's the problem. And they're not discerning the body of Christ. They're not discerning the fact that those poor people, that all the members of the church are also part of the body of Christ. That's how they're drinking judgment on themselves because they are turning communion into something else and they're, they're dividing the body and they're, they're having second-class citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Which is also why Paul's solution to this behavior is he says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. That's the solution. It's not to be terrified and make sure that you have confessed every conceivable sin you could have in your past. It's to make sure that you are taking it together and recognizing that we are all the body of Christ. Because that is an incredibly powerful thing to learn on a weekly basis. At the table, we learn to love and value each other. That has the power to transform people. We don't have quite the same rules about who you're allowed to eat with as they used to when, uh, when the, during the time of the New Testament. There used to be very, very strict rules about who you can and can't eat with, who you should and shouldn't eat with, and what it meant to eat with them. And one of the reasons why the Romans were terrified of the church is because it took all these people who weren't supposed to eat together and it got them to eat together and treat each other as fellow human beings. And that fact, that practice, transformed the Roman Empire in ways that terrified the people who were in charge. When we take communion together and we discern the body, we recognize that we are all part of the body of Christ that transforms us radically. I want to give you three main takeaways from this sermon. Number one, I want you to remember that Jesus invites us to his table to come to his table and experience his kingdom. This is the Lord's table. It's not my table. It's not Turner Christian Church's table. I mean, we technically own the wood, but when it, we take communion here, it's not our table. Any table you take communion at, if it is communion, if it is the Lord's Supper, it becomes his table. Which, on the one hand, is a serious thing for us to undertake. We recognize it's not our table, and we don't want to do it our way, we want to do it his way. But also, that means that his kingdom is present. His kingdom where we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Where we are united and reconciled 
and made into one family. Jesus told his disciples in the Last Supper that he would not eat, the, eat of the bread and drink of the cup again until, uh, except in his kingdom. And on the day he rose from the dead, what did he do? He broke bread with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. And then later he broke bread with all the disciples. What does that tell us? That the kingdom is here. It is available at the table. And as we take the supper according to the way Jesus has designed it, we are able to participate in the reality of eternity. The second thing I want you to remember, I want you to remember that image of the 800 pounds of beef. Okay? Think about that. I tried to find a picture of 800 pounds of beef, and I couldn't. But it's a lot. Maybe imagine 3,600 hamburgers. Right? I want you to remember that because the thing about the Lord's table is the food at the table never runs out. It has to be shared. Imagine what you would do if God told you I need you to distribute 800 pounds of beef today. Imagine how all the work you would put into to get that beef out there in 24 hours. And now remember that we have been tasked with sharing an infinite amount of grace and mercy and reconciliation and peace that comes from God. And every one of us has limited time to receive it. What should that cause us to do? The same thing that we do with the 800 pounds of beef. We're not going to turn people away. We've got to get through that meat, right? You've got a stomach? Come eat, right? We have this, this mission to share the Lord's Supper, to share the gospel, to share the reconciliation of God with everyone who will take it. And finally, I want you to remember that gathering at the table can transform lives, congregations, and communities. A person can be transformed by the experience of communion. Congregations are shaped by their experience of communion. And as we invite people from our community to join in communion, as we, in, as we go out as transformed people into our community... Our community can be transformed. But let me give you one more, one more note, okay? In Acts chapter 1, or chapter 2, they would gather together as a church in the temple for prayer and for um, the instruction, for prayer and the teachings of the apostles. But then, they didn't have communion in the temple. They went to their homes and they invited people over and they ate communion in their homes. Now, we're going to keep having communion as a congregation, but what that means is that what's true of the Lord, this is not a magic table that transforms into the Lord's table. Your table can be the Lord's table. As you invite people to it, as you... As you... As you Share the generosity of God. Communion can be outside of this building. It can be in your homes. As you, as you bring people over that you normally wouldn't bring over to your house. As you eat with people that you aren't naturally inclined to eat with. As you share the generosity of God, 
that transforms communities as well. So I want to encourage you that we all have the ability to bring the power of the Lord's table into our world, and it has transformed our world, and it will continue to transform our world. Amen? We are going to take communion now. And I'm going to give you a couple instructions, and then, uh, and then I'll let you do them, and then we'll, we'll do the next stage. Um, in a second, I'm going to encourage you, if you are sitting in a chair that is uh, on this side of a table, I'll have you turn it around and face the table. I'll also ask those of you who are able-bodied to look around for someone who may not be able to turn their own chair around and help them out. I'll also, if you need gluten-free bread... Um, as we're doing this, you can raise your hand, and we have a couple of elders who will be able to bring you bread. Um, I'm going to give you a few communion rules for this week, and then we'll get set, and I will um, bless the bread and the cup from here, and then you'll do communion at your table. Communion rule number one, no nibbling or sipping. Eat and drink. Oh, let me also say, uh, for the next one, talking is encouraged. There will be no music. So if you don't talk, it's going to be awkward. Which means, as we, if you're turning around, when we're turning around chairs, if you found yourself kind of separated from other people, feel free to choose a new seat that's closer to people you can talk to. Number three, extra points for laughing. <laughs> if you laugh during this communion, that is especially appropriate. And number four, be thankful. This is a time to be grateful to God for the blessings he has given us. So I'm going to give you a second. The AV team will come down and join in with us, and we'll get our chairs turned around and everybody gets situated. Remember, raise your hand if you need gluten-free bread, and someone will bring it around to you. Go. Anybody else need gluten-free? Gluten-free. Alright, I will be... I will be leading us and praying over the bread and the cup once we're all situated.
last note, there is almost certainly, there is certainly extra bread. So if you like the bread, feel free to grab a second piece, go to an empty table, take their bread. We would love for there to be no, it's a meal. It's a meal. So if, if it's all gone, that's great. I don't want to end up with 12 basketfuls afterward. You know? It's a Bible joke. I told you laughter was allowed. Okay, so I am now going to um, bless, uh, bless this meal. I'm going to thank God for, uh, for the meal we're about to share. And I'm actually going to use two things. I'm going to read from Scripture. And then the prayer that I'm going to read is actually from the Didache, which you may remember was written while at least one of the apostles was still alive. So this is the oldest communion prayer that we have. And so I'm going to pray over the bread and then pray over the cup. And then I'll encourage you to then take communion amongst yourselves, um, talk, laugh, pour, pour for each other. Um, if you want to say something significant, like talk about what you're thankful for, you could say the, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, something like that. Feel free to, to, to handle this how you like once I have um, thanked God for the bread and the cup. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and power through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may partake. Yeah. Do have an altar in here. Yeah. On that wall. 